I must start with a, an apology. I'm not fully prepared for this sermon. Normally I am, but I apologize this morning. What I mean is, I am prepared in terms of the study of the exegesis, yes. But I'm not fully prepared because I wanted to do something special. I had wanted a person to stand on my left, and I had wanted another person to stand on my right. I even offered them money. I said, if you do that, I'll give you $5. And they said, each one of them said no. I said, no, I'm serious. Five easy dollars. You just got to stand for 50 minutes. All they would have had to have done is wear a piece of white cardboard on the front and on the back. You've seen maybe the street preacher that has the white board and maybe in black or in red. It says turn or burn. Have you ever seen that in person? I've seen that in person. So I, I asked two people. One could be on my right, one could be on my left. And as I would preach, I wanted them to rotate like this and, and turn around. And there was going to be a message on this board that they would wear. But they said no. So I said, okay, how about $10? And they said no. Otherwise, they would be up here right now. I said, okay, that, that's 10 easy dollars you're missing out on. So I said, okay, last final offer is $15. I'm serious. That's 30 bucks I'm willing to pay. You, you each just wear this sign and just turn around. 50 minutes, $15. That's $5 and that's $15 for 15 minutes. That's, that's what you could pay. And they both said no. But they said for $17 that they would do that. That's actually what they said. And then they said no. One said no. $18. Like, who's taught you how to do business? You keep going higher. So they chose not to do that. On those signs that I wanted. Now, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I was testing. I wanted to see if they would do it. Maybe I would have tried. But on those signs, I wanted to also have a message, not turn or burn, but I wanted to put on those boards, if you turn, you're going to burn. You've seen the signs, the street evangelists, there were big billboards or maybe have a big plaque and it'll say, turn or burn. You know, you repent or you go to hell. I wanted two people up here having signs, even even said they they could walk it across like this. They still said no. And it would say, if you turn, then you're going to burn. We're used to having street preachers, maybe in downtown Seattle, or maybe in Venice Beach or Westwood, California having signs of the street preacher that says, turn or burn. This passage that we have in front of us, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, it's, there is a street preacher in this room talking to each one of you and is saying a little bit of a different message. If you turn, then you're going to burn. So you have the street preacher that's saying to unbelievers, you need to turn from your sin, turn away from the world, and turn to Jesus and embrace him so you don't go to hell forever. But also there is a church preacher inside, this is this passage, the church, saying to believers, if you turn away from Christ, professor, those that have professed, you're in here, you are at least professing Christ. This passage is saying, if you turn away from Jesus and never come back, then you're going to burn. Then you're going to go to hell. So it's not only the lost people outside the church that need to hear about turning and burning, especially those inside the church, especially this passage would say, need to be very careful because if they turn, they're going to burn even more in hell. 
is what this passage says. It's a very strong message, a very intense message. That's what the word fury in verse 27, fury is the word for jealous or, or zealous, very, very intense. That's a very intense passage. And it's giving motivation to obey and to carry out, holding fast to Christ, getting as close as you can to God, to know him and seeking to provoke one another and love to come along beside each other and to help each other become more like Jesus. And we do this so that we keep on trusting the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ and don't falter and, and don't fall away to give us motivation to do this. The Spirit of God writes verses 26 to 31 and it gives us motivation and it's very serious to not get to know God as close as you can, to not hold tightly to the gospel of Jesus, to give up going to church, to fellowship for one another, to do those things. It's very, very serious. We'll be placing ourselves in very serious danger. Why? Because all of these three resolutions, they are divine means to help us to keep embracing that sweet supremacy and sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus. Otherwise, it's possible that we may either quickly desert Christ or slowly drift away from Christ. And so the Spirit of God is saying such a thing especially for believers, is very, very serious and very dangerous. What is more dangerous and more serious to you than going to hell? And and not just that you would go to hell like some buddy and Lulu Naga land someplace that's never heard the gospel ever. You that have heard the gospel... Your situation is much more serious than some pagan that's never been exposed to the truth ever. My situation is even more serious than yours. If I was to desert Christ and deny him and never repent and never come back to him, then my hell would be one of the most worst hells ever. It'd be like Judas. That's what this passage is saying. It's saying that hell is real. It's saying trust Jesus, even as a believer, though I can't lose my salvation, my salvation is demonstrated and worked out by me trusting Jesus. If I come to a place where I say, I no longer trust Jesus, I no longer want to be a Christian, then I would go to hell. Unless by God's grace, he drew me back to himself before I passed away. If you look at verse 26, it uses the word for, and so it's given grounds and motivation to, we come to church to help one another to be like Jesus. We keep hanging on tightly with confidence to this person and work of Jesus, and we seek to really truly know God. And I try to get as closest to him as I have ever been before. Why? Because I don't want to go to hell. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by that good work that Jesus did. But that's demonstrated by me and faith hanging on to Jesus and pressing forward in faith. Now, this serious danger is going to be unfolded by three statements. So we're just going to look at three statements or three truths about the hell for a nominal, professing churchgoer who doesn't really know Jesus. So first, this passage is about the danger of coming near Christ and then deserting Christ. This passage is about the danger of coming near Christ and then deserting Christ. And we see this in verse 26. You can come near Christ. That doesn't mean that you know Christ. Judas was very near Christ. 
the Pharisees were all near Christ. But many of the Pharisees and Judas did not repent, did not know Christ, and today they're in hell. And they've been there for over 2,000 years. If you look at the verse, look at verse 26. It says, if we go on sinning willfully, deliberately, some of your versions might say, and in the Greek text, this is placed first for emphasis to to grab our attention and, and to stress about the type of sin this is talking about, this willful, deliberate sin. Now, what what sin is this talking about? Because I I would imagine some of you... I have this week deliberately, intentionally sinned. There are times even to get someplace in time, maybe it's church, I deliberately break the law. I deliberately speed. I have to get to church. I have to preach the word on time. So I got to put the pedal to the metal. Whatever that sin might be. I mean, I yell at my wife or my kids. That was by accident. Sorry, honey. I didn't really mean to raise my voice at you. I didn't mean to, again, kick my dog. You know, there are some sins that we do that do catch us by surprise, right? And we don't plan it out. But there are some sins which we do plan out to do. Right? Yes. This passage is not specifically talking about that. In context, this willful sinning, even if you look at the verse after receiving the knowledge of the truth, is in context, it's you have understood the clear gospel and its implications and the word of God and the person and the work of Christ has been laid out for you and you have said, yes, that that's correct. I I have to agree with that. And I'm even convicted by it. And I would I would even agree that it's true. And then after that, you say, you know what? I'm tired, it's too difficult, I'm bitter, things haven't gone the way that I think they should have gone in my life, I'm done, I think God is is real, but this whole Christian thing, I'm, I'm just tired, I'm out. In context, that's what this sinning willfully is. If you remember, you could go back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The nation of Israel saw all the miracles and mighty power of God and were redeemed by the blood and the power of God and even received the word of God and had a prophet teach them. And yet they could not enter. Over two million of them cannot enter the promised land. Not even Moses himself. Though Moses was saved, Moses believed. Many of those Israelites walked in unbelief. Even though they had seen all the miracles and powers and had received the very word of God, they acted in stubborn, willful unbelief. Verse 26 is saying, as people that are now hearing the new covenant and hearing the word of Christ and hearing the truth of Christ, you may have gotten really close to Christ in terms of your convictions. But if you walk away from him saying, I, I don't believe, I don't want to follow Jesus Christ anymore. He's not worth it. Christianity is not worth it. I'm, I'm done. That's the type of sinning willfully after they have, after you, me, have heard the, the word of truth. I know of, personally, of seminary professors that taught Greek and Hebrew that they came to a point in, in their life when they said the Bible's not true and Christ is not true. This passage would say that their liability is greater than anyone else's because of what they know and what they've heard and what they taught. And the Spirit of God is saying the same thing to these churchgoers here in the book of Hebrews and to us. And the passage says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We're certainly not talking about that the 
sacrifice of Christ, that his substitutionary atonement for sin is ineffective. We've seen chapters, really the whole book, but especially 8 to 10, is saying that the, that cross work of Christ, that blood work of Christ is supreme, is sufficient, it can crush, it can cover, it can cleanse anybody from all their sin for all time. It's not saying that that work is not sufficient and efficient. Rather, it's saying that if you come to understand all that God is in Christ and the gospel, you yes, I've heard the gospel. Yes, I've understood that. Yes. And even your heart has been maybe even convicted and encouraged about it. Maybe even you've sung songs about Jesus, right? You guys know people that have sung songs about Jesus. Maybe even led worship and yet they leave Christ. This passage here, verse 26, is saying that the best that God could ever do for you would be he would become a man, live a perfect life, die a satisfactory atonement on the cross for sinners, and rise again. And is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high, and is now living to intercede for you. And so if you are saying, not enough, or I don't care, I would rather have the world... There ain't nothing else that God can do for you. He did the very best that he, anybody could ever do. This is plan A. And there's no plan B or Z. This is it. Because the issue is not God or his plan or his work or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. The issue is your unbelief. And frankly... I can preach and you can sing and we can do it all with a heart of unbelief. And so here in this passage, the Spirit of God is encouraging these Hebrews that have professed Christ to not merely profess Christ, but to possess Christ and to persevere in the faith. And that's what he's saying to each one of you, including me this morning. I could preach. That doesn't mean I could preach Christ. That doesn't mean I possess Christ. I must possess Christ. Or of all people, I will be the most judged out of everybody in this room. This passage is about the danger of coming near Christ and then deserting Christ. Christ is real. We've seen that from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 10, verse 26. But this passage is saying that judgment is real and hell is real and God is real. Verse 31 says that he is the living God. So knowing then about Christ is not enough. You have to know Christ. Otherwise, this deliberate, willing sinfulness, then you have achieved that. But then there's no covering, there's no crushing for your sin. All of your sin, all of my sin can be forgiven except for one. Finally rejecting Christ, that that cannot be forgiven. Now, there's a second statement that is made, a second theological truth. Very simply, succinctly, three words, hell is real. And hell is not just, again, for pagans that live in Hollywood. Hell is not simply for LGBTQ or politicians that are all corrupt. Hell is for churchgoers. Hell is especially for churchgoers that don't know Jesus. That's what this passage is saying. This is what God is saying to you and to me. That hell is especially for those that pretended at one time that they knew Christ, but they don't really know Christ. Not truly. 
I'm not making this up. It's here in the passage. But first, before we get into the depth of that, first, this hell is real. I've known at least two professing Christians that have told me that hell is not real. Because God is a God of what? Love. He is a God of love. God demonstrates his own love toward us, but yet we were sinners. Christ had died for us. But God is also a God of wrath. And we were born children of wrath. Look at verse 27. Look at these words. Terrifying, fury, judgment, consume, fire, adversaries. These are all descriptions of a true reality. Hell is not fake. Saying hell is fake is like drinking moonshine, right? It's taking a substitute and, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. You drink it and then what happens? I've never drank moonshine before. It could kill you. But this, you know, under, having this idea that hell is just a legend, it's the worst thing you could ever believe. If there's no hell, I probably wouldn't be, wouldn't be a Christian, to be honest. I would say, look, I got like 80 years. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do anything, everything I want to. I, I repented, yes, because the Holy Spirit regenerated and convicted me, and I saw how beautiful Christ is. But also, a large percentage of it was I didn't want to go to hell. These verses here talk about hell. And it even uses the word terrifying, horrific. And there is even a, a word in front of the terrifying expectation in Greek, just this small little word, and it even brings up the certitude of it. That is this, that, that's why it says expectation, but it's, he could even, maybe it wouldn't translate it, but I'd paraphrase it, a, a terrifying reality or a terrifying certitude. More than the sun rising tomorrow is the truth of hell. We don't know. You don't know if the sun is going to rise tomorrow for you or not. But we do know hell is real. We know that heaven is gloriously real. But so is hell. And it talks about judgment. Hell is a place of condemnation. It's a place where God does damn people to hell. Their sin does, certainly, but also so does God. There's no condemnation in Christ. We hide in him. If Even this morning, even if right now, if you're scared and your heart is saying, I don't want to go to hell, praise God. Then cry out for Jesus to save you. In him, there's no damnation. Romans 8, 1. He even talks about, verse 27, the, the fury of a fire. A zealous fire. Have you ever made a, a campfire and you keep on adding on uh, trigs and, and big hunks of wood? Or maybe you've made a bonfire at the beach or we did at Indian Guides. And the, and the fire just gets, it, it gets huge. And if you get closer, you can feel the heat of it. Think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when, was it Darius? Nebuchadnezzar made the big oven. And those three amigos of Daniel, they wouldn't fall, uh, fall down and worship him. And so they were going to throw them in the oven. But the men that would throw them in the oven, what happened to them? They themselves were consumed with fire. That, that kind of heat, that kind of intensity is the idea of the fury of fire. Now, is this fire, is it real? Is it not feel? Is it not real? I would explain it. In a similar way to Revelation 22, where it talks about the jewels and the walls and the gold and the streets and so forth. I would say in Revelation 22, those are much more real than you could ever possibly imagine in terms of wealth and beauty. The fire and hell will be much more real and literal than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. Will it be the same kind of fire that we'd have today? 
No, it, it's a fire that's going to last forever, and it will destroy, it will burn both soul and body. So it's even a worse fire. Have you ever had your hand burnt? That's really painful. They say that fire is one of the worst ways to ever suffer and die. And at least that's what's being communicated. The type of pain and anguish and hell, it will be greater than a literal fire. It will be this intense anguish of incredible pain, and it will consume the enemies of God. And that's what we read in Deuteronomy 32. Consume. So some then will say annihilationism. So what happens is if you reject Christ, then you'll go to hell. And it's like a Matasiska Bob. You know, it's just like you press a button. God will press a button and <laughs> two seconds you burn and then you're done. And that's hell. Because it says consume. I mean, how long do you eat a piece of food? Not forever. You chew it up, swallow it. And so, based upon that, then some will say, well, hell, you know, God's a God of love, so he would not inflict people with pain forever. Well, theologically, what we would say is the Bible says in Exodus 34, 7, Nahum 1, 7, by no means will God let the guilty go and punish. God is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. He's infinitely holy. So even a small sin that I have done is an infinite crime against God, which cries out, therefore, for infinite punishment. Because God is holy. Well, this idea of consume, though, it doesn't have to be something that's immediate. Even consumed doesn't have to be the idea of a super wooden, literal, uh, chewed up and digested and swallowed in terms of a literal piece of food. For example, last week, Miami Dolphins football team, they had Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos for lunch and breakfast. They chewed them up and spit them out. Score was 70, I think, to 20. Now, when I say that, does that mean that the Denver Broncos football team no longer exists? No, they exist. But it means they were what? Totally ruined. Totally ruined. And totally humiliated. In a sense... Certainly much more than that. There would be an eternity of pain and anguish, which is beyond description. You know, I, I say often because it's in my mind. No ear has heard. No eye has seen all that God has in store for those that love him. And we'll put that in a negative way. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. What lies in store for those that trample the son of God. This is the idea when it says the fury of fire and being consumed. It's not annihilationism, but it's rather a saying that body and soul, that person which raises their fist up to God and looks at Jesus Christ and says, no, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. Then that person will have a type of anguish and pain which is beyond supra literal pain could ever be. Not because God is some kind of tyrannical God, but because he is the embodiment of what holiness is. And holiness itself cannot stand to look upon sin. And sin must be dealt with. And so that's why Christ died on the cross, taking the judgment of God upon himself. Now, maybe you were here this morning. Maybe you would say, I'm a child. And maybe you say, I'm an older guy. Maybe you'd say, look, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't killed anybody. Maybe I stole once in my life. Maybe. So I'm not really an enemy of God because it says here in verse 27, it will consume the adversaries. Maybe this morning you would say, I'm not an enemy of God. I believe in God. The atheist. That's an enemy of God. Maybe those people that say they're Christians, and yet they say that they're a homosexual Christian. Think Matthew Vines. That's the person that's an adversary of God. Not me. I go to church when I can. I'm pure. 
I'm careful with my eyes. I haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ, but I believe in him. I just don't want to follow him. Or maybe at one time you said the sinner's prayer, but now you're like, you know, I got my fire insurance. So I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But I kind of want to experience the world a little bit more. Well, the truth is then, probably you would fit this description of the adversaries, the enemy of God. I I was an enemy of God. Romans chapter 5 Verse 10, anybody that hasn't repented and trusted Jesus is an enemy of God. It says in verse 10 of chapter 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. When you're born, you're born under the wrath of God, and you're born an enemy of God. And if you don't hide in Jesus, then you're on your way to hell. And if you said the sinner's prayer, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner, please save me. And maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you came to church, but then inside of you, I'm using you in a general sense, you kind of drift away. You know, church is kind of boring. The preaching's kind of long. My my schedule's already busy. I can always listen to some podcast. I can always listen to Paul Washer. And then I'll be okay. I had my Paul Washer fixed. And so you, or whatever. I had my John Piper fixed. But slowly you drift away. Well, this passage is saying, then you're an enemy of God. And your hell is going to be much worse than you could possibly. Your hell could be much worse than a prostitute's hell or a Hollywood actor's hell or a corrupt politician hell. Your hell is going to be worse. You arrogant person. Now, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying that's what God is saying to you in this passage. And he's also saying it to me. Saying this to all of us. Consider... Well, let me go forward a little bit more before I go there. I have mentioned this, but let me read it to you. Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28. And again, I am trying, I pray that God would give me the appropriate words and attitude. I'm trying to bring out the intensity the seriousness, but especially the intensity and seriousness for churchgoers. This passage is not written to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's written to who? To you and I. Romans 10.28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then verse 27 says, but a terrifying expectation. So this should be something that terrifies us in in a sense. Again, we want to live by faith and not by fear. We fear God, and it's not a slaveless, a slave fear. But rather, there is a fear that we should have a an awareness of, I need to keep working out my salvation. I need to keep believing in Jesus. If I have the attitude of once saved, always saved, which I believe the Bible teaches. But if I have the attitude of once saved, always saved, I can say this in his prayer, live however I want to. Well, then that would actually mean probably most likely I'm not even saved. And going to church and hearing a sermon is not going to save me. It's going to make me more liable and I'm going to be in a slide to a deeper part of hell. I don't think there's necessarily deeper parts of hell, but a more severe judgment in hell. All the while, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I, well, I have to be careful. I was, I, I've driven around with some people that may look at a certain type of uh, restaurant or bar and be all those those dirty, wretched sinners. They're all going to hell. 
And so are you if you don't trust Christ. Hearing a sermon, singing a song, having a a deep feeling in your heart that God loves you and that God is talking to you doesn't mean that you're saved. Have you asked Jesus to save you? And then are you demonstrating that not by perfection, but by persistence in Christ? That's the message that is written here. And the motivation being given is if you don't persist in Christ by his grace, not in perfection, but you really are persistent on knowing him, then it's quite possible you're on your way to hell. And your hell is going to be worse than that Roman centurion that puts a spear into your chest to kill you, I'll feed you to the lions. You're meaning that, you know, you said, I know Christ, I know Christ, but you don't really. And you die, then hell's going to be greater for you. That's what this passage is saying. Hell is real. And especially for the churchgoer that does not truly repent, their hell is far greater. And we see this in the third and last point, is that there is a more severity in hell for those who profess but do not possess Christ, preserving in him. Again, I am simply trying to bring out these words and the attitude here when it talks about terrifying, consuming. Again, 31, terrifying, fall into the hands of living God. Verse 30, vengeance and and judgment, severe punishment. So I'm trying to bring out the intensity of this passage, realizing it's written and directed primarily to people that are going to church. And even these people are what? They're suffering. And yet the passage speaks to them this way. Now you have in these verses, really 28 to 31, you have a a lesser to greater than argument. You can see this in verse 28. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, that talks about that if there's a person and he commits this gross crime that's worthy of death, there can't just be one witness to testify against him. There has to be two or three. If there are two or three, then that person can be condemned and be executed. That's the Old Testament law. And verse 28 says, without mercy. So if there was a crime that was going to be met by execution, it couldn't just be one person to say, yes, I saw him. There had to be at least two or three. Then a sentence of execution could be carried out. That was the Old Testament law. So then in verses 29 to verse 31, you have even much more. You see that in verse 20, look at verse 29. How much more severe a punishment, how much greater, how much more agonizing punishment will be that person, and you see not just two, not one, but three, trampled underfoot the Son of God, one, two, has re- God had uncleaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And then three, has insulted the spirit of grace. So a churchgoer that maybe sings songs and even said, I I know Jesus, he's great, he's wonderful. But then maybe after a year, maybe after 30 years, walks away and says, you know, I said that prayer. No, no, that can't be true. And God's been so mean to me, and my life has taken so many curves, and somebody robbed my house, and my friends are in prison, my wife and my son are in prison. No. This passage is saying that 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 churchgoer is deserving. You know, they've left Christ. They've said, I don't want to follow Christ. They are deserving of an even greater punishment than what was given in the Old Testament. And it's applied in context to God's wrath and to God's wrath in hell, to God's fury. And it gives these three witnesses, the, the, the Son of God. And a person, God forbid that any of you or I would turn away from Christ, that we would reject Christ, not just deny him three times and come back like Peter did, but that we would 
completely turn our backs and never come back to Christ ever, then we're, we're trampling God like he's a piece of garbage. The Son of God, the Messiah, which in the prophet, the priest, the king, he's nothing. He's just like rubbish to me. So when you hear the gospel, you hear the truth, and it's preached to you, and maybe you have this warm feeling in your heart, and maybe, yes, I, I agree in God, I, I agree with God, I, I believe in Jesus, you know, that, that he was real, but the Christian, anything, ah, but yet you've heard the gospel over and over and over again. Your severity, your accountability is much greater, and so your severity is going to be greater because really you're taking the Son of God and you're just stomping on him like he was garbage. But it goes further, and I said then in verse 29, this covenant, the, the new covenant that was instituted by the death of Christ, that even set you apart and that made you special, this incredibly perfect, sufficient, the supreme atoning work of Christ that set you apart unto God. You're saying that it's just very common. It's just a common work of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. It's this idea that it's it's nothing. It hasn't been set apart. It's not special. It's not significant. Probably we shouldn't be, you know, 2023, right? A.D. in the year of our Lord. We should probably just change it to like 8,000 something. What I'm saying is because it didn't matter what Christ did in the cross. I'm saying that that's what, when it says, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is saying that that person, God forbid it's one of us, but that churchgoer that comes a point in their life when they say, not true, it doesn't matter to me anyways. You're saying, that person is saying that all the work of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, it's worthy to be stomped on because it's absolutely insignificant. It's just like a common thing in the world that hasn't been set apart unto God. And then finally, even this third one has insulted the spirit of grace. When a person is enlightened by the spirit of God, and you've seen this happen with others, I'm sure, even when you're witnessing to them, they're enlightened about their sin, they're convicted about their sin, and there's something stirring up and inside of them, and maybe there even seems to be some fruit, and they pursue Christ for a while. I'm thinking of Matthew 13. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches of the world really chokes out that gospel seed, and these people fall away from Christ. In a sense, they're mocking the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace, because it's the Spirit of God that convicts, that enlightens that calls forth people to salvation. And so to feel those stirrings in one's heart and to say it's not significant, it's not really worth anything, you're mocking the Spirit of God and you're mocking Christ and you're mocking God the Father. Now, in order to bring this home, The author writes verses 30 and 31, and it's going to say, you can look at verse 30 with me, and it's going to say that you have a knowledge of God, and basically you know the Old Testament. Verse 30, for we know him who said, we know God, we know who God is. He is a God of love, yes, but he's also a holy God, and he's a God of wrath. And even the Bible says this, and we read this from Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. And that's even quoted in Romans 13, vengeance is mine, uh, Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Vengeance is God, because there's been crimes that have been committed, and those crimes will be paid for. And if a person 
as a churchgoer, they hear the gospel over and over and over again, but end up rejecting Christ, then they are saying that there has to be, by their actions and by their attitude, there has to be another way of salvation, or that salvation itself does not exist, or God doesn't exist. Or the work of Christ is insignificant. And all of those are crimes against God. And so verse 30 says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay that person. That is, God will bring damnation to that person in hell forever. And then he confirms it again at the end of verse 30. And again, Yahweh will judge his people. Did God judge the nation Israel? God redeemed, he delivered Egypt out of bondage. That's right, he delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And what happened to all those people? Most of them were judged. Now here, when it says he would judge his people, I think it's referring, one, to that physical people of God. That is somebody that says, I know you. They sing a song, they come to church, maybe they they, they even were, were baptized, but they're not really truly saved. It's just... It's an outward nominal Christianity, similar to what much of Israel was. They sing like the people of God, but not really in the heart. God will judge that person. Perhaps also, too, when it says the Lord will judge his people, perhaps it is referring, and we'll look at this in a couple of months, Hebrews chapter 5, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. There is a, a discipline and a type of judgment that God does bring to his true people. But this passage is talking about hell and final condemnation. Now, when this passage ends in verse 31, it says this sentence, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, to be truthful, I've never thought of this sentence in terms of somebody that goes to church, but always in terms of what seems to be like really, really evil, sinful people. For that person, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, I think of Hitler. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. While that is true, this passage is written to people that morally, they are good people, but yet In the finality of their decision, they have rejected Christ. Even though they might be churchgoers, or at least they were, and they drift away or desert Christ, this passage is saying the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a person that doesn't know Christ is they fall into the hands of the really true God. For you and for I that know Jesus, I I would say it this way. The very best thing that could ever happen to you is that you jump into the hands of the living God. Because you know Jesus. There would be nothing greater for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Guess who? You know who I heard say that? I was watching this podcast. You know who I heard say that recently of all people? Tucker Carlson. I told you he had read through the New Testament and now he's in... Sorry, he read through the New Testament and now he's in the Old Testament. And he said recently, he's talking about the Apostle Paul. And Tucker Carlson said, I'm not afraid to die anymore. For me to live with Christ, to die is gain. Is he saved? I don't know. But that's that's what he said. And in one sense, truly, I, I could turn around verse 31 and say, the very best thing that could ever happen to me, that could happen to you, is that you would fall, that you would jump into the hands of the living God because you have taken refuge in Christ. But if you ignore Christ or try to get to heaven by your own ingenuity or good deeds, then you're stepping outside of Christ. And so then if you fall into God, that's the, without Christ, that's the worst possible thing you could ever, ever, ever do. I have peace if I die because I know that I'm in Christ. Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord, my my hope. But if somebody were to have a different hope, a different Savior, or not even care, then the worst possible thing that could ever happen to them is to fall into the hands of the holy, 
God, who is their creator, sustainer, Lord, King, and Savior, but they've rejected him. That would be terrible. Again, Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest his wrath soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. If you've not taken refuge in Jesus Christ, would you take refuge in Jesus Christ today, this morning? Right after the sermon, you can pray. You can pray with one of the elders and say, Lord, I want to be saved. Save me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need you, Lord Jesus. I repent. Save me. Or maybe you are a believer, but you've been thinking, maybe even playing around this idea of deserting Christ, that there's something better than Christ, or that it, it just doesn't matter. Would you this morning get right with God, get right with Christ? Realize that there's nothing more serious than God, Christ, the Bible, and hell. There's nothing more serious than that. This passage is not being written to murderers or thieves or terrorists, but it's written to church-going individuals who are being tempted to leave Christ. However, faith clings to Christ. Faith seeks to fellowship. Faith seeks to know God. Why should you resolve to embrace the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? To say it as plain as I can with all the humble love for you that I can, you of all people, if you were not to trust Christ or to reject him, your eternity would be horrible. You would spend forever in a worst possible place. Why do that? Why do that? Focus on Christ. He is worthy. Trust him. Let all things go. Focus on Christ. Press forward in faith. As real as hell is, much more real is heaven and Christ. And that's what the following verses were all talk about. Because it says in verse 34, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So don't throw away your confidence. Trust Jesus. He is better than any sin, and heaven is better than the best that this world has to offer. Trust Christ today, tomorrow, and forever. Trust Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us of the reality of hell and its severity, especially for those that hear the word of God and yet reject it. Lord, we pray for any here and our friends and our neighbors that at one time have spoken of their devotion to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would turn them back around to yourself and they could truly be rescued and truly be saved. Lord, may we have a simple faith and devotion to you because you are worthy. May we always trust you, Lord. We give you the glory. We praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.